Well, we're in chapter 12, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wasn't, I couldn't remember where I stopped, but I think I'm going to start on verse 21 of chapter 12. Yeah. I am right. Okay, that was when I was studying it yesterday. I, I couldn't remember the exact verse, but let me just remind you, in case you weren't here last week, the last plague, plague number ten on the firstborn, is chapter ten, and of course, among other things, that results in the death of Pharaoh's son, his firstborn, and then before we have the actual record of what happens. <clears throat> In verse 29, chapter 12 focuses on two very important, um, what, what become holidays, but become important uh, ceremonial, ceremonial remembrances that they are to follow for every year from here on out. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as we talked last week, I wrote it on the board. I'm not going to write all that up again. But Passover, theologically, is their substitution and their propitiation with God. God will spare the firstborn of the Israelites if blood has been shed from the lamb and it's spread on the, the, the doorframe. And propitiation, it satisfies the wrath of God. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to illustrate and represent and symbolize their separation from Egypt. They are now about to leave. And so that's what we reviewed, and we talked about that quite a bit last week. Now verse 21, they begin to carry out in obedience these two, uh, they're called festivals of the Lord. The other thing I wanted to remind you of, and this is, this is a very important point to me, because it's setting up the chronology of what God is doing. They are about to leave Egypt, and as he calls upon them to observe Passover, and then the following seven days after that. So it's an eight-day sequence. Passover one day, the following seven days, Feast of Unleavened Bread, is to be in the first month of the year. So what God is doing is God is establishing now the calendar for them. He is about to take them out of, their, out of the nation of Egypt, form their own nation. We saw that in chapter 12 twice. I'm reading for the NIV the whole community of Israel is that phrase that is used in verse 2 and then down in verse uh, 6. That's language, and that's very important in the Hebrew, that is language which is stating you will now have a separate identity. We would say in our language they are now nations. And what is going to happen is they are liberated from uh, Egypt they will then go to Sinai and they will get their constitution. That's what we would call it, which establishes a frame of government, the ceremonial and sacrificial uh, obligations and the festivals, and then their whole civil law, everything God wants them to do. He said a theocracy. And then he will give them their land. So giving them the count and marking it off with these festivals is the beginning of their distinctive history as a nation. This is just really, really important. That's how I want you to, to think about this with me. Each stage we go through, I'll really try to identify that. Uh, just to clear that up in my yeah. mind, uh, that's like March or, March or April. Our time. Our, if you use our calendar and superimpose it, that's right. Right. And no, and no, so our calendar gets changed by 
who later? Well, it, yeah, the Romans, uh, our calendar is really the Western civilization calendar. Basically, everybody else follows it. But, you know, Islam has their own calendar. Hindus have their own calendar. But the basic calendar that we follow is a calendar that was established by the Roman Empire, but then modified in the 6th century by the church. And in, I can't remember the exact year, it was 600 and something, 676 or something like that, the Bishop of Rome said, okay, tomorrow we are, we are changing all of our calendars. And I want everybody to eliminate 12 days from your calendar, and this is the date. I mean, it, because you know what happens, you know, how our calendar's based on the movement of, of, the, uh, of the sun and so on. And if you don't allow for that, you start losing days. That's why technically it takes 365 and one-fourth days for the Earth to revolve around the sun. And so that's why every four years, what do we do to keep it accurate? We add a day in February. And I'm telling you more than you even want to know. I know that. But anyway, so it was really our, our calendar is a product of what the Roman Empire did. And I think I told you the story about Julius Caesar and Augustus, didn't I? Okay. And how they played around with that. It was really fascinating. Verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Get at once, select the animals for your families, and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a branch of hyssop. Now, hyssop... Uh, if you ever go to Israel with me, I'll show you plants. The hyssop is like a brush-like plant, not a very large one. You cut off it, and that's what you dip it. It's like a paintbrush. That's really what it is. So with the hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. That's the key that it provides the substitution. The lamb died for that. His blood is on the door frame. And when the angel sees that, the substitutionary death has occurred. He'll pass over. Has passed over. Got it? That's where it comes from. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through his land to strike down the Egyptians, he will set the blood, see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe will pass over. There again, that's why it's called that, that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer. And uh, NIV's translating it that way. I don't know what all your translations have, but that's the angel, the death angel. It's a horrible way to put it, but that's really what it is, that God sent to enter your houses to strike your own. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. Now today, regardless of whether you're an Orthodox Jew or a Reformed Jew, you will celebrate Passover. Not by slaughtering an animal and painting it, not, not that way, but by doing the Passover feast. You eat the Passover meal. And that is a really big deal in a typical Jewish family's house. I mean, it really is. And then verse 26, uh, well, I should read for 25 too. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? And especially in an Orthodox Jewish family, but in a Reformed Jewish family, if they follow the tradition, they just go through that. They have the Passover meal, and one of the children says, Daddy, why do we do this? And then you sell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So thinking of another way to look at the Passover festival, the Passover feast, 
It has a didactic purpose. It is to teach truth. It is just like when you celebrate communion. Why did Jesus institute the ordinance of communion? As an object lesson, to remind you, I don't all your different traditions and churches, I don't know how often you celebrate it. But whenever you celebrate that, whenever you do that, it is to cause you to remember. Because Jesus said twice, do this in remembrance of me. It is to cause you to remember what I did for you. And that's exactly what they're doing with Passover. It is to cause them and then to be an effective means to teach your children truth. Teach your children what God did for you. It's just, it's a wonderful... And if I can say it this way, it's a wonderful reminder of our responsibility to teach our children truth. And when Rob took his boy the other night to that see that film, I mean, I'm singling him out simply because he just told us that, but when Rob took his boy to see that the other night, he was doing that. He was teaching his son truth about God. That what God said he did in creating everything is verifiable. It's not some myth. It fits with the scientific evidence that we can observe today. And I'm just saying it because that's part of our responsibility. And I, I just loved, I love verse 26. I just think it's one of the neatest verses in this section. And then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did what Moses commanded, uh, what the Lord had com- uh, commanded Moses and Aaron. Then verse 29 and following is just summarizes that the actual death angel comes, and this was the result. Please note it's at midnight. The Lord struck all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon to the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, where there was not a house without someone dead. So... That is the thoroughgoing nature of what God said he would do, he did. All right, now, we're about to start the Exodus. (laughs) Now, what I would like you to do if you're interested in following this is make sure you have page 9 of the handout of the notes because there's a map of this whole area and specifically focusing on the route of the Exodus. And if you're inter- if you don't, that's fine. But if you're interested in this, I want to point out some things as the text begins to tell us about the geography of this. Any questions on the Passover, unleavened bread feast, or anything like that? We kind of covered that last week, but it just ran out of time to get it implemented. And you watch them start to, to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I mean, so I mean, maybe it's from watching Charlton Heston, but. When I think of the firstborn, I think of the younger children. But I mean, you could not be necessarily. An adult, you could be an adult, male, right. the oldest sibling in the family. That's right. And That's right. It's not necessarily only young. It, whoever the firstborn was, that person was, was taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> We're coming up to our annual viewing of the Ten Commandments, aren't we? I don't know how you are in your house, but that's. I was telling Jim, my son, when he was a small boy. For some reason, he loved the movie Ten Commandments. And that's not a short movie. That's a long movie. So every Easter, sometime during the Easter weekend, we watched it. And we usually watched it twice. So I, mean, I know the dialogue. I, start, I can give you, I can repeat the dialogue. I know exactly what's coming. But I also said to Jim, maybe you're this way, but some of you don't know the Ten Commandments like we do, I guess. But 
I'm going to be terribly disappointed when I get to heaven if, if Moses doesn't look like Charlton Heston. I mean, I just, you know, I say, oh, that's kind of a disappointment. Hi, Moses. <laughs> you know, but I don't mean to. That, that's a reason why no other movie about that topic could measure up to the Ten Commandments movie because of yeah. Charlton Heston. I mean, he's, he's yeah. a consummate Moses. Yeah, absolutely. Ben-Hur and everything. Yeah, Ben-Hur's another yeah. one. I didn't see, uh, well, Jim and I were talking about that briefly. I didn't see the remake of Ben-Hur that came out a while ago. But I just, I remember when I read about it, I thought, I, I think it was done by a Christian group, but I just, how could you do better than that original Ben-Hur? I just, that was so well done. Well, anyway, doesn't have anything to do with what we're studying. Verse 31. Now, I want you to notice the language of Pharaoh here. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you requested. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and go. Also, bless me. Now, I want you to notice something. The extraordinary nature of Pharaoh's statements here. It, if you, you have to go back through the plagues. But remember, Pharaoh proposed four compromises. Remember that? And each one obviously was rejected. We're not into compromising. You must let us go, period. Our children, our wives, our flock, everything. But here you see, the language of this is an impotent Pharaoh before a mighty God. And I told you this before, again, this goes back a number of weeks. I wrote a bunch of stuff on the board of the worldview of ancient Egypt and the importance of Pharaoh as a God in that worldview. Here you see the consummate evidence of the impotence of Pharaoh before the almighty God even going so far as to say, bless me. And I've often, as I study this, I've thought, what does he mean by that? What does he mean, bless me? You know, I mean, he's not, he certainly is not, I mean, there's no evidence of that. He's not seeing Yahweh Elohim as the one true and only God. That is not how he's looking at this. But he certainly is seeing that the God of Moses and Aaron, and that's how an Egyptian would talk about it, the God of Moses and Aaron is greater than anything I am. And so he's impotent before that, and so that's why he says, I recognize I have no power compared to the power of your God. Bless me. That's got to be bugging him. Oh, yeah. Immensely. Because well, it's yeah. his job to be that. That's right. That's exactly right. And as I said, I, I, in the book I wrote and everything, I really talk a lot about this. What God is really doing here is rendering inoperative and in every way dismantling the entire Egyptian way of looking at things. Their worldview is dismantled before their very eyes. It's an incredible triumph of Almighty God. Very polemical. Do you know what I mean by that polemical? It's a very polemical presentation through the plagues. It is, it is an indictment and a polemic, again, every facet of what the Egyptians believed. And here's the crowning aspect of this. Pharaoh declares his impotence. Go. Oh, and bless me, will you? <laughs> then verse 33, the Egyptians urged, this is really great, the language of this is in Hebrew is really incredible. And the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. Hurry, get out. 
Why? Because we can't stand you have destroyed Egypt. For otherwise they said we'll all die. So the people, this would be the Israelites, took the dough. Now that takes you back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, they had to carry that. The dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading trough, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked Egyptians for articles of silver and gold. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Now, in my Bible, I wrote, this fulfills Genesis 15, verses 14 and 15. God promised Abraham. Now, remember, Abraham's 2000 B.C., This is 1446 B.C. God said, your people whom I will raise up from your loins, numerous as the stars of the sky, he said they will go into a foreign land for 400 years in slavery. Then they will leave plundering the wealth of that nation. What exactly God had promised is now fulfilled with specific detail. It's a remarkable piece of evidence once again of the trustworthiness of Scripture. The unleavened bread, can we talk about that again for just a moment? Did I read it, or did you tell me, <clears throat> tell us that it was to cleanse the mouth? Well, um, that's to cleanse them out. I'm not sure what you mean by cleanse them out, Woody. Uh, I thought I read that maybe in the study Bible. Well, well, Remember, um, leaven, and this this becomes very important for the rest of Scripture, leaven is a symbol of sin. It's a symbolic, you know, that's how the Jew was taught. Leaven, leaven, you can't avoid leaven. Leaven. Whatever you have is going to leaven. It's going to happen. But you are to be consciously, and this is part of that festival, you have the Passover sacrificial substitutionary festival. This lamb's blood is shed as a substitute for you. That's how I can have a relationship with you, God is saying. Followed by seven-day festival of unleavened bread, where you clean all the leaven out of your house. You clean all the, you, everything you're using for your bread and everything has no leaven in it. And so you are being in, very intentional and very, 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 uh, very comprehensive because now your sin has been atoned for, Passover. Now this symbolizes your new standing with me. Your sin problem has been taken care of for another year. And so you, it's symbolic, Woody. And so it is that symbolically this is what God has done. Now the other thing that is powerful here is that this, as, as part of what I t- put on the board last week, This is also now to symbolize for them, we are separating ourselves from Egypt. We are cleansing ourselves as we leave of everything from Egypt. We are totally, we're now, and that's how I think God wants them to see it. I am now forming you as a very separate nation. You have nothing anymore to do with Egypt. So, I mean, it's really, it's the symbolism of this is really powerful. And I, I, I'm glad you brought that up again, just to rehearse again the importance of this symbolism. And again, this is the beginning of their new year. And from here on out, this is how you start your year. And, and the month is Nisan, or sometimes called the month of Av. Yeah. 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 Ye
uh, Joel. I just want to be clear. There's nothing sinful about leaven or yeast. It's just that it's using that. It's getting rid of that as you get rid of sin and cleanse your life. In your house. Yeah, it isn't that there's anything evil innately about leaven. It just becomes a symbol, uh, a symbol for sin. That's why I, I, I used to know this. I think um, leaven is used something like 75 times in the Scripture, and every time it's used, it's used in a negative way as symbolic of sin. And that's why you're cleaning it out. And so, it, it's so obstructive that it occurs right after Passover. Right. Passover, the substitution, the shed blood of the lamb, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is this next week. You, you now are experiencing the completeness of this cleansing for another year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, so symbolically, then, unleavened bread would be like the perfect unblemished lamb for the sacrament. Yes, yes. I mean, right, right. And that's why, can I give you a little bit of history? I don't know if this is a big... This is why there was a major controversy between the Eastern Church and the Western Church in those early centuries. What should be the bread we eat in communion? Should it be leavened or unleavened? That was a, can you imagine that was a major controversy, which was one of the seven major reasons why the Eastern Church and the Western Church split in 1054 over the nature of the bread that's used in the Lord's table. I, you know, I, I'm not sure God is real excited about us arguing over something like that where it splits the church in half, but it really was a big deal. It really was. All right. Now, verse 37. Here's where, if you want to do this, and if you want to follow this, here's where I want to point out some of these locations. Some of these we know, some of them we're not so sure. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. Now, if you look on the map, you've got to remember you know, where they are. I, I'll hold it up here. You've got to remember they're in Goshen. You should be able to find that. That's where they've been for 430 years. And you should be able to see the city of Ramses. And then you, you do not go very far. We're not talking about it. They're not traveling for hundreds of miles here. Sukkot is just a little bit to the southeast of Ramses. So this is it. all the text. This is really important. All the text is doing here is affirming one the historical nature of this, and two the geographical specific details of this. This isn't just being made up. This is what they did. There were about six hundred thousand men on foot, besides women and children. Now, some of you that are mathematicians, you're hopefully doing a little bit of math. 600,000 men. By the way, that 600,000 men figure is verified in the census that's recorded for us in the book of Numbers. They're not just pulling this out of thin air. This is verified in the census that's done in Numbers. That's why the book of Numbers is called Numbers. But that (laughs) census that they do, that gives us the specific number of, of men according to each one of the 12 tribes. I mean, it's, it's really neat to verify all that. So that's why we would conclude how many Israelites are leaving Egypt. Well, if there's 600,000 men, and the text says this is not including women and children, at least we would probably double that, which would make it 1.2 million. But certainly because women and children... Now, again, not every man necessarily was married. Not every man was married and had kids. 
So you, you, you can't get an exact number, but you are at least talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 to 1.4 million. That's remarkable. You also said that some of the Egyptians went with them too. Yeah, some do. Uh, that that comes up a little bit later on, and that is in the census that's in the book of Numbers too. Yes, yes. And if you remember the Ten Commandments, there is a little portion of that. That isn't real historical there. And they get the date all wrong in the Ten Commandments movie. Egypt that populated? That'd be like the state of Nebraska getting up and leaving. That's right. That's right. I want you to be astonished, David. I'm astonished. Good. <laughs> no, it's just, it, it, it shows you again of, of the, and you're going to see this pretty early on. Moses really gets this organized. He really organizes these people. And he does a lot to give structure to this because he is trying to manage a lot of people. And don't forget, too, this does not exclude or maybe I should say, you have to include as well as you think about this, the animals that go with them. So, I mean, it is, that's why, and I certainly can understand that, that's why the skeptic of Scripture says that's a made-up number. There's no way you could manage that many people, which I, you know, I'm not, just because it seems extraordinary doesn't mean you can't do it if God's doing it, which, of course, is the factor that makes it important. Now, the text does say in verse 38, many other people went with them. That's a general statement. Numbers gives us an idea. It groups them. Um, It certainly seems it's in the thousands. And these are Egyptians. Why they go with them, some suggest, and this creates all kinds of issues. The Bible just is silent on this. Some suggest that it was servants, Egyptian servants, that went with them. Uh, we just don't know. But it's just telling us, in addition to Israelites, many other people with them, also large herds of livestock, both flocks and herds. Verse 39, again, it's emphasizing the importance of that unleavened bread. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had driven, been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. And again, it's that, that dough, the unleavened bread, that's just symbolizing the separation, the separation, separation. Verse 40 is important. Now, the length of time the Israelite people were in Egypt was 430 years. Now, I said, and this, I can, I argue the reason for this in, my, in the book I wrote. But anyway, if they were in Egypt 430 years and 1446 B.C. is the date of the Exodus, when did going into Egypt start? Somebody do the math. 1876. Good, 1876 B.C. And that is exactly the year that Joseph brought the clan of Jacob into Goshen. We can document that. So the Bible is being very precise, and we can show with precision that this works out to be exactly 430 years. Just a coincidence, right? Just happenstance. That's when Joseph brought Jacob and the clan of 70 down into, into Goshen. Not when, not when Joseph went, but when 
No, when he, that's right, that's right. <clears throat> yeah, right. So it's kind of neat. Um, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt, because the Lord had kept the vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt on this night, all the Israelites were to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. That's all about the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so on. Now, verse 43 and following is just a summary of what we have just finished studying with the Exodus, the Passover, the Unleavened Bread. I'm not going to read all of that, but I do want you to notice in verse 49, the same law applies to both the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. So in other words, the standards and the stipulations about circumcision, about Passover, about unleavened bread, are to apply to the alien living in your land. And alien's not an unkind word, it's just those who are non-Israelite, that's all it's saying. All the Israelites, please notice verse 50, all, 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 all the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. On the very, that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the other divisions. So you have this, this summary, but this remarkable, <clears throat> incredible, supernatural, awesome deliverance from Egypt and Egyptian bondage of uh, 430 years. Now, any questions? Because we begin to shift to another important ritual that is a part of of the history of, of the Israelite. It is the consecration, the setting aside of the firstborn. Why do you think God did that? Well, he had just taken the firstborn as the last plague. Now he asks Israel, consecrate, set aside your firstborn to me. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to kill them. It just means you set aside consciously your firstborn to me. And it's, it's an interesting way to, to examine what the Lord is, is doing here. If you read verse 1, chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me, do you understand what consecrate means? <coughs> Set aside, treat as holy. <coughs> to me, every firstborn male, the firstborn offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. What does that mean, belongs to me? I thought everything belonged to God. What does it mean, belongs to me? So as a firstborn and actually onlyborn, does that impute some kind of special responsibility to the firstborn to, to carry out God's will? It does. Uh, it does uh, denominate some very special responsibility to the firstborn, yes. And that's not if the whole it story. were a woman, if it was a baby girl? First born male the verse says first born male now there are no women in this bible study you know what? so i mean this isn't a sexist statement this isn't saying that women are inferior this isn't gender superiority but this is a sovereign creator god of the universe saying i want you to consecrate the firstborn male whether it's animals or whether it's your, your, your children. Firstborn are unique to God. 
firstborn in an ancient Near Eastern society got the birthright in terms of property, in terms of now the firstborn is the head of the clan, head of the family, head of the clan. And I think, as Rob just said, the firstborn has very significant responsibility. The firstborn has very significant responsibility, this is a very important sentence, to maintain the spiritual commitment of that family to God. Does that mean clan doesn't mean necessarily tribe? Well, clan, I, I should maybe have started down that trail. Because remember that the, uh, the Israelite um, society as it's going to develop is very similar to all the societies in the ancient Near Eastern world. You organized yourself socially around family, clan, tribe. That was your, that's how you identified yourself. You didn't um, think of yourself as, I am a citizen of the United States. That's how you and I would say we are. I just got my passport renewed. Uh, you know, every 10 years you have to do that. Just got it in the mail the other day. And again, it reminds you of, you know, this is one of the great privileges of citizenship. You are a citizen of the United States of America. And we are trusting you with this very significant document. You know what I mean? And I just identified. I mean, I don't, I'm a citizen of the state of Nebraska, but I don't think of that too much. In ancient Israel and much of the ancient world, that's not how you thought. You thought about your identity. I, I am the family of, and then you, you are Jim, the son of Donald, or in my case, Jim, the son of Paul. That's how of the clan of, which is a member of the tribe of, that's how you, you identified yourself. And so to be the firstborn, you now have a profound responsibility to make sure that your family and your clan, the, the tribe is much larger, is faithful to God. And that means you have a responsibility to teach. You have a responsibility to make sure all of the festivals are being observed within, and all of that. So God is saying, I want that firstborn. That firstborn uniquely belongs to me because the responsibilities I have for them is significant. And it's just, it's... It's why you will see a number of people in the Old Testament. What comes to mind right now is Hannah taking Samuel. She had been barren. God, Lord, opened her womb. She's her firstborn. What does she do? She consecrates Samuel to the Lord down in Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. Why is she doing that? This is all the echo of that. So it's just, uh, you know, I'm the firstborn of my family. My parents didn't do anything special. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean that in a derisive way. They just didn't. You know, it's firstborn, big deal. By the way, well, I keep telling you all these stories, so I won't tell you that story. But can I tell you this story? When I was in seminary, uh, one of the chapel speakers, uh, his name was Paul Myers, a very famous uh, psychiatrist, a Christian, he has a great counseling ministry. But he said, I'm just curious about something. This is how he started his message. This was his message, he just started I'm just curious, how many of you in the chapel this morning are firstborn among faculty, staff, and students? I want you to stand up. Do you know how many stood up? Most. 78% of the people in attendance. And the reason he said that, he said, generally speaking, our research shows that firstborn are much more highly motivated because they have been pushed the hardest by their parents 
to excel and exceed, succeed in what they choose to do. And you are evidence of the proposition we are floating in our research. And then he went on and said there are advantages to that, but there are also disadvantages. And so he itemized. It was kind of a neat thing to see. I've done that several times uh, in my upper-level classes to see how many students first born. It is remarkable how many that are near the top are first born. How many of you in this room are first born? Look at that. All right. Okay. Research is proven. 78%? Uh, I don't think it was 78%, but it was high. Doctor, I yes. So extrapolating ahead, then the firstborn of God is Jesus. That's right. And, exactly. And we're in the family of Jesus. That's right. And we're the family of God. Mm-hmm. So that, that just, just oh yeah, it's really it's that's really important. Yes, um, and it's so interesting how many times in the in the Old Testament, particularly, God chooses who has the firstborn responsibility. Remember Jacob and Esau, who was the first one out of Rebecca's womb? It was Esau, but God said he's not the firstborn responsibility. Jacob is. It's just fascinating. All right, let's move into verse three. And Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you come out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. All right, you know all that. Today in the month of Aviv, that's Nisan, the month of Ab, the first month, it's called two different things. When you, the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, the land flowing in milk and honey, you are to observe these ceremonies in this month. It's a command. Again, I, I want to reemphasize before I gave you this. This is the new calendar of the new nation, and now God is setting up a theocracy. He's the ruler. They don't have a king for 450 years. Who is their king? God is their king. God is a stat. I'm, I'm getting animated here. I'm sorry. God is establishing a theocracy. Theocracy means God's rule. That's what theocracy means. He's their king. The question will be, will they recognize him as king? Will they live under his authority as king? And the answer to that is many will, but as time goes on, most won't. They keep pushing back and rebelling. You know, there are a lot of ways to approach this in terms of the whole stream of biblical history. But one thing God will show over and over and over again is humanity needs a righteous, perfect shepherd king. Not just Israel, but all of humanity needs a righteous, perfect shepherd king. You understand the metaphor shepherd who will nurture and bring us along in obedience to God. Who is that? Who is that perfect? It's Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is a major thread that runs through God's Word. That humanity needs that righteous, perfect Shepherd King, because our desire is to be independent, autonomous, and disobedient as you undoubtedly know, conceptually. 
For seven days eat bread made without yeast. Seventh day hold the festival of the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing in the yeast is seen among you, or any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your children, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. There again is that importance of teaching children that responsibility. And in the way I understand the Old Testament, firstborn teaching children. The firstborn has that responsibility in the family and in the clan to make sure that is being done. And God's giving the object lessons by which to do that. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, etc. Verse 9, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. Do you know how the traditional Orthodox Jew has taken verse 9? This is the origin of the phylactery. Have you ever heard of that? It's a little black box. My art is terrible. That's supposed to be a box, okay? It's a little black box about, about this big. Take the size of this and make it into a square. And in that square is this passage and Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, um, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, put this in your heart and teach this to your children. That's the phylactery. And they wear it on their head. I mean, I've been to Israel many times and I've seen that. At prayer time, well, on the plane, when we're going over to Tel Aviv, almost always this happens. You have, a, you have a, a man stand up, he wraps his prayer shawl around his waist, puts on his phylacteries and standing there praying. Standing in the plane, praying. It's, I'm serious, I've seen that many, many times. Flying from, from Newark or New York or Atlanta to Tel Aviv, and you see that you're doing that. They take this literally. I mean, I'm not sure this is to be understood literally as a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. But they put it there, that becomes a phylactery. That's the word. And it's really, a, it's really a fascinating to see a group of Jewish men doing this. And I mean, it's, but they, they do it, they do it at the prayer time. And if they're on a plane crossing the Mediterranean or the Atlantic Ocean, wherever it is, <laughs> and the airlines let them do it. I mean, they really do. They allow them to do that. Yeah, I walk in my neighborhood and I see it. There was a Jewish. Do you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just wanted, if if you are around or see or ever read or if you ever get to travel to Israel, you will see that it's largely among the Orthodox Jews. Reformed Jews don't don't usually do that. But I'm thinking your maximum chance of seeing that is to be around the Wailing Wall. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my yes. Oh yeah. 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 And one of the neatest things to see when you're at the Wailing, I've seen that a number of times is when a young boy is having his bar mitzvah. Because, I don't know if you, it's very segregated. The men are here, and there's a big petition of women over here. And so and then the, the, the little boy, well, he's not real little, but he's little, comes in, he's carrying, he's carrying the Torah. And as he's approaching the wailing wall, and then the ceremony ensues, the women are all standing here in back of this petition. But they stand, they, they bring benches, and they stand up so they can see it. And then as that's being completed, the women are going, blah, 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 blah. that's really what they're doing. It's not, it's like, blah, 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 blah. they're making all this noise, and they're throwing candy. 
at the bar mitzvah. It's really a neat thing to see. I mean, it's very cultural. It's not real biblical. It's more midrash traditions. But man, I'm tell- I'm going on all these money trails today. But um, that's verse nine. If you see verse nine. And you see a phylactery around a Jewish man's head. That's where they're interpreting. That's how they're interpreting this. The uh, leather strap that they put on their arm was is that the same thing? Yeah, uh, it's not, they wrap it around exactly. Mm-hmm. And then they have their prayer shawl on. Uh, it's just really neat to see it. The prayer shawl is usually up over their shoulders, and they take it from around their waist and wrap it around their shoulders. Some of them even put it up over their head. I haven't seen always a man do that, but some do it. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt, you shall keep this ordinance appointed time. Verse 11. And the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised to an oath to you and your ancestors. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. Now this is a, a commitment, consecration. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, what's that saying? Now, listen to me. This is really important. The symbolism, this is powerful. You give your donkey to the Lord. But you need that donkey to do your work. So you redeem. What does the word redeem mean? Buy back. How do you redeem that donkey? By shedding the blood of a lamb. Your firstborn son. He's your son. You want to teach him to be your successor. You want him to work in your fields. So how do you redeem your son back? The shed blood of a lamb. Now, do you start to see how this connects with what Jesus does? Jesus as One of you said it, I forget over here who said it. Jesus is the firstborn son of God. Jesus redeems all of us, how? By his shed blood. So God buys us, how? Through the shed blood of his son. That's why when you look sometimes in the New Testament, go go to a concordance and look at how many times the word redeem is used in the New Testament. And when you see that word, think here. Because this is where it starts. The firstborn is redeemed. The firstborn redeemed. How? By uh, the blood of a lamb redeemed. So you buy back your son. From whom? From God. That sounds bizarre. But remember, God says, I consecrate the firstborn. They belong to me. Your donkeys... <coughs> Your oxen, your rabbits. I'm not sure they had rabbits. I just made that up. But anyway, whatever it is, including your son, you redeem your firstborn among your sons with a lamb. You buy back your son. You redeem. And that's just powerful because that's what Jesus did for us. He redeemed us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you were bought with a price. You are not your own. What price? The shed blood of Christ. Isn't it incredible how connected everything the scriptures is? It's really remarkable. Those threads that go through the rest of the Bible and culminate in Christ. I mean, I just, this is really exciting stuff to study 
from my perspective. It makes the Bible come together in a way that if you don't do end up steady, you miss it. If all you do is talk about moral ditties every now and then, you miss the richness of what God has revealed to us. I hope that's, that's uh, hidden. Verse 14, again, notice the didactic teaching purpose of all this. In those days to come when your children ask you, what does this mean, Daddy? Why are we doing this? Say to them, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of his people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every woman. Redeem each of my firstborn sons. It will be like a sign in your hand and a symbol in your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Now, I want you to notice there's a simile there, like a sign. It isn't a sign, it's like a sign. Every time you go through this ritual of redeeming your firstborn, whether it's your animals or your son or whatever, it is to remind you that God took the firstborn of Egypt to get you out of slavery. That's just very powerful, symbolic reminder of everything that God did for Israel. And for you and me, this side of the cross, when we celebrate communion, however you do it in your tradition, it is to cause you to remember Jesus redeemed you. Jesus bought you with his blood and his broken body. It's sort of exciting, isn't it? I know we don't get excited about biblical truth here, but it's just... I don't know exciting. if his body wasn't broken, though. I'm sorry, Tom, go ahead. His body wasn't broken. Uh, I've been just quoting from yeah. the old King James yeah. there, yeah. that Everybody says, that's correct. I don't know how significant this is, and I don't know if the recorder picked it up, but you sounded just like Charlton Heston when you read that. <laughs> I think that was a compliment. I'm not sure. <laughs> really, I didn't know that. I, it was very powerful. Is that right? It was not intentional. But I think it's a compliment to be compared to Charlton Heston. So anyway. Um, what time is it? Ugh. Can we start verse 17? Any other questions? Are you with me on all this? I'm wanting you to, I hope you are, I think you are, to make the connection to Jesus in this. Because the rest of the Bible helps us to make that connection. Now, we're going to start the actual Exodus event here now. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. Now, what I want you to do is take a look at your map. This is really, really neat. Uh, I think you can see it if you look real carefully. Your copy should be clear enough. You can see where they are. They are at Sukkoth. Okay, just let your eye go a little bit to the northeast. You can see an international highway. It says the road of the land of the Philistines. Do you see that? Yeah. What God is saying here to Moses, don't let the people take that route into Canaan. That's a direct route. They, if they had taken the Philistine road, they'd have been in Canaan in about three weeks or two weeks, maybe, depending on how fast they move. Because from, from Ramses to Sukkot is about 30 miles. Well, anyway, why not? Because this is a heavily fortified road by the Philistines. So if they take the road of the Philistines, immediately they would run into opposition. They're not ready for that. 
They're not prepared for that opposition. So God's very explicit. Don't let them take that road. It's shorter, but God said if they face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Red Sea in Hebrew... Is Yom Suf. I know that doesn't mean anything to you. But it's um, it's actually, I made that an O. It should be an A. Because Yom is for day, but it's Yom, Y-A-M, not Y-O-M. But anyway, um, I want to talk about what that means and where that is next time, because we're almost out of time. This is what I want you to just look at. So instead of going to the easy route, God directs them southeast. Now, what this this route that they're going to go is a mining road. This is a road that maybe they were even, some of them were even familiar with because they had been slaves. But this isn't some obscure route. This is a route that will take them and they'll parallel the Gulf of Suez. They'll parallel that, which is also called the Red Sea. But that's what they're going. That's where they're going to go. So they're going to head, and you think, well, that's crazy. They're actually going the opposite direction. Because God has a number of things He wants to do to them and for them before they head into Canaan. And what's the most important thing? Their constitution, their law. So he has to get them, well, I shouldn't has to, but he wants to get them to what we know as Mount Sinai, sometimes called Mount Horeb in the Old Testament. And that's what is going to begin to unfold here. And Pharaoh is going to change his mind. And Yule Brenner is going to run after, oh, sorry, it isn't Yule Brenner, but Yule Brenner is going to run after them. And you know what's going to happen. And tomorrow what I want to do is I want to decide where is the location where Pharaoh's armies, his chariots, and everything are destroyed. And I want to, uh, I want to focus on that a little bit next week. And it's a fantastic story, as you already know, at least some of it, as we get into that. All right? So we covered a lot today. I'd love to give you an assignment of a thought paper on all this, but... Uh, the very second I start making assignments in this class, the next Wednesday I'll come and there'll be absolutely no one here, so I won't ever do that. Let me pray with us. Uh, pray with you here. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the Word of God. And the more we study it, the more we see the unity of the Word of God. That what uh, so often starts in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Without question, what we've just finished, this material on Passover, Unleavened Bread Festival, and now the consecration of the firstborn and the redeeming of the firstborn, oh my, that all points directly to Jesus and how he fulfilled all of that. So we can say with great thanks in our heart, Jesus, thank you for redeeming me, purchasing me at the cross. The New Testament says it was the shed blood of Jesus that purchased us, that redeemed us, that bought us. 
we now belong to you. And as we put our faith in you and we watch you begin the, the wondrous work of transformation, we are more and more confirmed every day that we are a child of yours, that we belong to you. And we share in the firstborn rights. We'll share as the rights to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, which is what the scriptures say. All that we're starting to study as we're in the book of Exodus is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and we praise you for that. Now that you dismiss us, Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. Take care of each man here. Watch over them, all the responsibilities they have. Give them wisdom. Lord, help them to take away the things from our study as you continue to transform and change them to the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. See you next week.